Well, at this time, let's turn in our copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. And I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, uh, let's focus our attention upon the passage that we just read especially as we find the prophet Isaiah revealing to us something of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We have God the Father speaking here in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. This is, of course, one of the servant songs of Isaiah, the most familiar of which perhaps is Isaiah chapter 53, which speaks of the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant who redeems his people and offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. By his knowledge, he justifies many. Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is Isaiah setting forth throughout these various songs of the servant here in the book of Isaiah, setting forth the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, uh, counted equality with God not something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, we learn from Philippians chapter 2. Behold, the Father says, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul 
delights. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the elect one, in whom all of God's believing people throughout history have been set apart and chosen from before the foundation of the world in Christ, the elect one. And so God's spirit is put upon him. And we're told that having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, that this suffering servant who would give his life for for many and would rise again victoriously, that this uh, servant, having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now that word Gentiles does not mean uh, a small percentage of individual non-Jews, but it's a term that means nations, entire nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations, would even be a better translation in some sense. But of course, it is speaking of non-Jewish nations, but, but it's the nations of the world, entire ethnic people groups, uh, geopolitical entities throughout the world. We've been looking at this in our sermon series. Uh, he brings forth justice or righteousness to the Gentile nations, and we're told he does this through the power of the gospel, through the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, through the persuasion of his word and spirit. We're told he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That's not saying that he won't be an open-air preacher. We know Jesus was an open-air preacher, but it's saying that as he's interacting with people on a one-to-one basis, he's not shouting at them, he's speaking to them, he's winsome, He's uh, alluring them. He's persuading them. Um, he, he doesn't raise his voice, and it's not heard in the street. If you're walking past the house, you're not hearing him screaming at people. Um, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. And so he's sensitive to sinners. He's a friend of sinners, and he has a heart for sinners, And he has a heart for his believing people who trust in him. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, Someone who has true faith and yet it's not a conflagration of spiritual strength and vitality. It needs to be fanned into flame. It's just a little flickering wick. It's just a smoking flax. And he has compassion on his wayward people, his doubting yet believing people. Yeah, you see that with uh, Thomas at the, in the upper room when Jesus rose again from the dead and he appears to the disciples and Thomas isn't there on that first uh, day of the week, that first Sabbath day in the New Testament. And then a week later, Thomas is there and yes, Jesus confronts him, but also Jesus welcomes him to put his hands in the nail prints and in his side and, and, and he, he's very sensitive to Thomas and you see that throughout his ministry. Those who come saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, And even Thomas, who wasn't quite even as, 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 you know, his approach was not even to that extent. Jesus was sympathetic. Jesus was gracious. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. And so uh, this is an encouragement for believers, though we struggle with sin. That yet... It's ultimately not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Christ that is the ground of our assurance. Yes, we look for the fruits of faith. We examine ourselves for the marks of union with Christ. 
Yes, of course, that is absolutely the case. But uh, look to Jesus and come to him again and again and again. He will not turn you away, though your faith and your repentance are weak and your obedience is weak and it's flickering and smoking and barely perceptible and you're a bruised reed and you're a feeling like you're about to fall apart, come to Jesus. He will mend you and heal you with the balm of Gilead. And so this is the presentation of Christ. He's bringing righteousness to the Gentiles. He's conquering the world, yet through the still small voice, through his word, through his gospel of salvation for undeserving sinners. And we're told he will bring forth justice unto truth, for truth, really could be unto truth. He brings forth justice unto truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So he's sending forth his great commission to all the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, He's establishing principles of justice and righteousness, not just Uh, preparing a place for us in heaven, but he's actually establishing these things on the earth through the gospel in history by the Great Commission as it goes forth to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Jesus commands us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, And so you have this heavenliness being applied and implemented in the earth, righteousness and justice and obedience to God's commandments, which are are summarized in love for God, love for others. So by implication, he's establishing love in the earth. And the coastlands, which I'd have to look at if it's the same word from what we looked at in our psalm meditation from Psalm 97, but it's the same idea as what we heard these islands, these coastlands. Uh, If you're living in Israel, uh, pretty much everybody who's beyond the Mediterranean Sea or beyond beyond these large bodies of water is an island, is a coastland. And so this is referring, again, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We would be, in North America, an island, a coastland, from the standpoint of the Jews of old. And in, in particular... Uh, It's also the case when when we look at this passage, the isles and the coastlands, that this would refer to the portions of the earth occupied by the children of Japheth. We looked at that in our sermon on Genesis, and we saw that uh, the descendants of Japheth would be enlarged, would spread out, and eventually come into the tents of Shem, uh, which we see in the fruit of the gospel in the Western world. But Genesis 10, verse 5, Genesis 10, verse 5, speaking of uh, the sons of Japheth, from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, so this is post-Babel, speaking of that, um, according to their families into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, which is Egypt, Put, and Canaan, so on and so forth. But um, we, we traced out the children of Japheth that spread out and were enlarged in their expansion throughout the world. 
And uh, most commentators, at least that I consulted, were of the opinion that, that these coastlands, if we were to identify a particular area of the earth and a particular portion of Japheth, it would be Europe and Asia Minor, similar to what we discussed in our sermon on Genesis in part, as part of this sermon series. We saw the, the Eastern European uh, Asia Minor uh, geographic region as likely the, the, uh, the reference to this type of thing. So the isles and the coastlands, even into the Western world, throughout all the earth, shall wait for his law. In other words, it's coming and it will reach them. And of course, we're evidence of that here this evening in Southeast Michigan. We're part of the ends of the earth, the coastlands. Uh, many of us are, are descended from Japheth. Many of us are not. Really, you have uh, testimony to the, the, the varied uh, expansion of the gospel even here. We've got probably children of Ham, Shem, and Japheth here tonight. But you see, the Western world, particularly will receive this gospel. Now, uh, here in Isaiah 42, this reference to the ends of the earth and the coastlands is a theme that you see expanded and expounded throughout the remaining prophecies of Isaiah. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But it's at this point that I want to return our focus upon the thesis of our sermon series. Uh, We've seen Isaiah 42 right there from the text speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, establishing righteousness and truth among the nations, the ends of the earth, even the Western world. We've seen that he does it through the still small voice of the gospel. We've seen that he will not be frustrated nor discouraged. And let me just stop here for a moment and say this type of language presupposes that it's not just an escalator from the, you know, the first century up to the 20th century and beyond, that is just a, um, an, up, uh, an upward movement, that the church of Jesus Christ does not go up like this, just completely uh, like a stock that immediately skyrockets. It's not like that. There are ups and downs. There are one step forward, two steps back, five steps forward, three steps back. There's a progress to the kingdom of God such that God, through Isaiah, needs to remind us that even though it may seem that the advance of the kingdom throughout the world is failing and perhaps we're discouraged and our faith is fainting and we're struggling to to believe these promises, it's telling us that Jesus at God's right hand is not like us. He's not discouraged. He's not fainting or failing. He will persevere and finish the job. He will disciple the nations. This is the whole point of the Great Commission when he says to his disciples, go disciple the nations, and then he says, surely I will be with you till the end of the age. In other words, go do it and I'll make it happen. I will be here. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he will not fail. We fail. The church makes all kinds of mistakes, uh, but Jesus through it all will sovereignly defeat the devil, not just at the cross, but in history, he will win the chess match. He will reach checkmate and disciple the nations prior to his return. And that's really the theme of our sermon series. As we live in a dark age, an age of pessimism, an age of cynicism, an age where the foundations of a 
once largely Christian culture are being destroyed in many respects and uh, the, the doom and gloomers are out and the people who think that eschatology means, you know, everything gets worse and worse, uh, you know, they're, they're out there uh, proclaiming that message, seemingly confirmed in that perspective. But we're going back to the scriptures and we're noticing that based on the teaching of scripture, all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. We saw that in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, that Abraham will be, through his seed, which is Christ and his church, will be heir of the world, that all families and nations will be blessed in and through the seed of Abraham. That is Christ, and that is all who are in Christ by faith. And so we've seen this optimistic approach, this approach to world history that says that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, he's the Lord of Lords, he's sovereignly enthroned at the right hand of God until all his enemies are placed under his feet. And he'll remain there until that happens. And then, as we said in a previous sermon at the end in the book of Revelation, there's a falling away at the end where where Satan is loose to go out and run amok, and, and of course things uh, rebel against Christ at the very end, and he returns in judgment. But prior to that return, we're told there will come a day when all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion, and we've seen that in our part one sermon on Isaiah. Uh, we saw it in Isaiah chapter two, uh, just to remind us here, verse two, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and he shall uh, and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. We're told that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then it says, Jesus through his word by way of the Great Commission, will judge between nations and rebuke many people and bring world peace. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. They will uh, cause their spears to be turned into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So that's just kind of a, a picture of this justice and righteousness established in the earth. We saw that confirmed in Isaiah 9 the increase of his government and of peace. Uh, Of that there shall be no end. Uh, The prince of peace, we saw in Isaiah 11, that the kingdom of Christ brings peace to the members of the church in his kingdom, those who are vicious and violent and aggressive, like a wolf or a leopard or uh, a bear or a serpent or a cobra, shall be made peaceful, peacemakers. And we saw that the the spiritual meaning here, it's not a description of heaven, but the wolf dwells with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat. It's in the church through the gospel that groups of people, people who are members of different ethnic groups that are at war, that you see almost never coming together, people with personality conflicts, people with all kinds of things, marriages that are falling apart, the power of the gospel brings them together in unity in ways that defy earthly explanation. Even again, as we reflect upon 
Middle Eastern churches of which we're aware that there are ethnic Jews and ethnic Palestinians worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in unity and in truth. These are things that the world cannot account for. And so Isaiah uses this miraculous illustrative language uh, describing the kingdom of Christ. But I said I was going to say something more about Isaiah 11. Um, After it describes this beautiful picture of peace within the kingdom, uh, we're told, verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this is not just inside a church that is a tiny remnant, you know, us four and no more, and we all get along, and so on and so forth. But this is actually saying that when the kingdom of God uh, experiences an unprecedented global expansion and the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas, that's when we're going to see peace among the nations because the nations have been brought into the kingdom of God. The nations have professed faith in Christ, have adopted the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and so we see nations are not at odds because the members, the the citizens of those nations are so influenced by the Lord Jesus, and these people are members of the church, and because they're members of the church under one king, these nations are no longer uh, quarreling and fighting against each other. That's the idea. So the unity of the church, as the church grows, brings unity to all nations. Then we're told in verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him. This is Christ, capital R, root of Jesse. This is the Davidic Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. He will be a banner to the people, The Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So his church will be exalted, and there will be Gentile converts. But we're told also there are going to be Jewish converts as well. Uh, And I mentioned this before, that whenever you see the phrase, the people, right next to the nations, uh, the reference to the people is oftentimes to the Jewish people. And you can see that in uh, the early church in Acts 4 when they quote Psalm 2 and other instances. But um, a banner to the people, meaning the Jews, and uh, the Gentiles shall seek him. So it's Jew and Gentile. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people that are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, Elam and Shinar, Hamath and the islands of the sea, he will set up a banner for the nation, uh, nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. So again, you see there, the people, God's people, Israel, the Jewish people, and the Gentile nations. So, he, so there's a banner for the nations and a regathering of the outcasts of Israel. And He says, I'll gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth and the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So this is saying that the Gentiles are going to be brought in, the fullness of the Gentiles. The Jewish people are going to be regathered uh, under the banner of Jesus Christ, the root of David, the root and offspring of David, the root of Jesse. 
And in addition to that, there's going to be unity, right? Ephraim and Judah had been fighting like cats and dogs, constantly fighting. Uh, Judah was uh, unkind toward Ephraim. You remember Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who was kind of heavy-handed with the northern kingdom and exacting of them in a way that was not healthy. And so they split off and were bitter. And of course, they're resenting the fact that God put his temple in the southern kingdom of Judah there in Jerusalem. And so these groups are fighting like Presbyterians, fighting like cats and dogs. They can't get along. And yet we're told that this envy, this sectarian strife within the kingdom of God uh, will be resolved. And so once again, it's a picture of the fact that peace comes to the nations by way of peace coming into the church and spreading out from there. Uh, there's, a, there's a peace and a unity in the church that impacts and creates peace and unity in the world. But notice, it's Gentiles and Jews. Now, some people in these type of passages are going to want to tell us, well, this is spiritual Israel, right? Uh, this is spiritual Israel that's being gathered. It's not a reference to the ethnic Jews, like Romans 11. We'll look at that in a future sermon, Lord willing. Uh, it's not Romans 11. The, all the Jews, as a, as a massive collection of this this massive ethnic group throughout the world it's not a reference to them largely coming to faith but it's spiritual israel it's the elect and you see there's a problem with this type of interpretation because if the reference to israel and ephraim and judah is merely a reference to the elect or to spiritual israel then it raises the question who are the Gentiles, right? Who are the Gentiles that are flocking to this kingdom of God? Who are the Gentiles that are gathering under the banner of Christ? See, when you have a passage where both the Jews and the Gentiles are said to seek the Lord, then the reference to the Jews or to Israel can't be spiritual Israel because whenever we think of spiritual Israel, then the corresponding uh, counterpart to that would be the spiritual Gentiles, in other words, the world of unconverted people. But if the Gentiles in the passage are converted people that are non-Jews, it's not the spiritual Gentiles, those people that are outside God's covenant of promise and headed for hell, but it's converted Gentiles. And we have converted Jews. Whenever you see it in that respect, then you can pretty much uh, you, you can pretty much conclude that the reference to Israel here is ethnic Israel, and the reference to the Gentiles is ethnic Gentiles. And so descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are being gathered to the Lord Jesus Christ under his banner, and they're being unified. Uh, verse 14 says, again, this unification and global expansion of the kingdom of God throughout every nation is not a reference to heaven, but notice, they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, so on and so forth. So there's conflict involved. It's still in a fallen world, and there's still conflict 
that is taking place, and God's people, both Jew and Gentile, are in opposition to those who oppose them. So Isaiah 11 is reinforcing this idea that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 19, uh, uh, an amazing passage about Egypt, Assyria, and Israel co-equally gathered into the kingdom of God, into the church, with um, Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. And uh, while the rabbinic scholars might try to find some kind of pecking order there, you know, to give Israel the edge, it's not. It's, it's they're all co-equally gathered. But the point is that it's a global uh, kingdom of God that, uh, that covers the earth. Now, we saw Isaiah 42. We've seen that even though this is perhaps discouraging and seems hopeless for us, Jesus is not discouraged. Uh, Jesus is continuing to disciple the nations in his way. Uh, It's not something that happens like a stair step with ongoing, uh, unmitigated progress. There are ups and downs as Jesus chastens the nations, as he, even in our own land, chastens us and disciplines us for our disobedience. And yet, he continues to advance his kingdom. Now, We mentioned that the kingdom goes forth to the isles and the coastlands. Look with me at Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 8. Look at some of the references here to the gospel going forth to these coastlands. And we're going to see that not only is it to Asia Minor, Eastern Europe, the Western world, but we're going to see that there are distinct references here, even as we heard in the Psalms, Psalm 68, a reference to, to uh, Ethiopia stretching forth its hands toward the Lord. There are references to almost every type of region in this world. And we need to grab hold of these and find encouragement, uh, especially depending on our ethnic background, where we hail from, where our ancestors are from. We need to be thinking about what is the hope and promise of the gospel for the people group from which we have come and for the nation in which we now reside. So you look at Isaiah 49, another uh, servant song of Isaiah, speaking of Christ. Verse 1, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me, this is Christ speaking, the Lord has called me from the womb, From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Again, the sword by which Jesus conquers the nations is the sword proceeding out of his mouth. It's his gospel and his law, his word. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. In other words, Christ, as it were, is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's instrument for defeating his enemies and gathering his elect. And he's a polished shaft. Uh, The the arrows of the king are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies, Psalm 45. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel. So Jesus here is the embodiment of God's covenant people. 
We were told elsewhere that he's been given as a covenant for the people. He is Israel uh, embodied. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now you see here that when we say that Jesus will not be discouraged, he will neither fail nor be discouraged. It's not to say that he's not aware of the spiritual condition of his people and of the nations at large. It's not as though he's completely oblivious or he just puts his fingers in his ears and shuts his eyes and, and just totally ignores the rebellion, the rank rebellion throughout the nations of the world against him. Uh, he's aware of that. Uh, and in his humanity, even in his ministry, at times you see this humanity coming out. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He's aware uh, when things are not the way they've been created to be. And so you see that reflected here. He's aware of these things that might otherwise bring discouragement. But why is it that Jesus neither fails nor is discouraged in advancing his global kingdom? Why is that? Well, he says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. In other words, he's saying, I've purchased a people. The, the souls of those for whom I offered myself as a sacrifice, those whom I purchased in body and soul, my people are mine. They've been given to me from all eternity. I will lose none of them. I've been given this commission to bring the nations of the world under the discipleship of the word of God. I've appointed my apostles. I'm ruling and governing through my church. I'm building my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so I know that I have purchased this people. Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Jesus says, I've asked, I've purchased them. I have done everything according to that eternal covenant of redemption with God the Father. And so surely my just reward is with the Lord. He doesn't say, oh, I won't be discouraged because uh, there are these really great preachers in the Reformed Church, and there they are, and look at how amazing they are. He doesn't say, oh, I won't be discouraged because uh, look at the trajectory of history and uh, you know, we, we can evaluate the rise and fall of nations and identify the dynamics. He doesn't say that. It, that's not what gives him this resolute optimism and confidence about the discipleship of the nations. His confidence is in the fact that he has purchased his elect, and that includes everyone who comes to faith in whatever circumstances, in every age, in every nation, and we know that that will involve increasingly such a great multitude of Jews and Gentiles as the nations of the world will beat their swords into plowshares. And so he knows it. It's not just optimism, it's faith. It's confidence that he who promised is faithful. He promised, ask and I'll give it to you. I asked, I did everything I needed to do. And so my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now, that ought to be our confidence regarding the, 
the future expansion of the kingdom and the prosperity of the gospel throughout this age. It's not fundamentally looking at the various elements and dynamics of church history and following the political news and seeing where things are heading or looking at the state and condition of the church today and how gifted its ministers are and the theological ups and downs. That's not fundamentally why Jesus is confident that he's going to bring justice to the Gentiles. It's actually that he who promised is faithful and his work is with God and it will be rewarded. It goes on, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing. This is amazing here. He's saying, I've been appointed to save Israel. Uh, He's called Israel, verse 3. He's the seed of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham uh, is this constant theme throughout the gospel promises in the Old Testament. And so there's a sense in which it it makes sense that he would come to save this multitude of the children of Abraham. And, And we know from Romans 11 that at the end of the day, he will. But that's the part that's interesting. That's the part that's intuitive. Then he goes on to say, Uh, That's not enough. I'm not satisfied with that. Now, there's an element of uh, anthropomorphism here where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking in in human terms as if there's a negotiation between he and uh, the Father in heaven. But he says, saving Israel, he says, it is too small a thing that you should uh, be my servant. Sorry, this is the Father speaking. But it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice, he's saving Israel and the Gentiles. It's not just saving Israel as a spiritual Israel, but it's saving Israel and the Gentiles. So the reference to Israel cannot be spiritual Israel, Because otherwise, who are the Gentiles that are being saved? Because if if we're talking about spiritual Israel, the Gentiles would be part of that. So what it's saying is that uh, it's too small a thing. His work is so glorious that he's going to save not only a great multitude of the Jews, but he's going to save the fullness of the Gentiles as well. This is the, the confidence that he has in the promise of God throughout the earth and to the coastlands. And you'll look at verse 23 of the same chapter. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. So again, the conversion among the nations is so great that even the kings the most powerful men and women, the kings and queens throughout the nations are bowing down in subjection to Christ and uh, reverently respecting the ministry of his church, his covenant people. So this is massive. This is something we, we've, we've seen something of it throughout history, but nowhere near to this extent thus far. 
Look with me as well at Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. We've seen it's to the ends of the earth. It's to the isles and the coastlands. Uh, perhaps an emphasis on the Western world. We've seen it's to the Jews, the Israelites. They'll be regathered as well through the gospel. Isaiah 59 and beginning in verse 14. Uh, once again, we have uh, a recognition here of how dark the circumstances are among the nations. Uh, and we see this even in our own day. This could have been written as a description of the 21st century. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter, so truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. We see this even in our own society. Uh, people being retaliated against because of their commitment to the truth of God. Uh, those who try to exempt themselves and depart from evil are made a prey. They're vulnerable to attack in various ways. Nothing compared to what we see in other countries where there's physical persecution. Understand that. But there's, there, there's a, a, an injustice uh, and, a, a, and a mild form of persecution against the church even in our own land. Uh, he goes on, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So we're beginning to see this is including the Western world, the coastlands. But then notice what, what's said right after he brings judgment on them. Now just try to remember maybe some things we've talked about before. We talked about Revelation 19 where Jesus takes that iron rod that Psalm 2 says he uses to dash the nations to pieces, and Revelation 19.15 says that he then rules those nations with that rod of iron. So the nations that he judges, he then rules. We've seen that time and time again. In Isaiah 2, the nations that he rebukes are the same ones that repent and promote peace and beat their swords into plowshares. You, you can see it in Isaiah chapter 19 with Egypt. The same ones he strikes in verse 22 of that chapter are the same ones who then enter into covenant with him as his people, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. So there's a pattern here of judgment that leads to salvation. Not the final judgment leading to damnation, but God judging a nation. And we pray this is what God is doing in our land that the imminent providential judgments that seem to be on the horizon, that these things would actually be uh, tailor-made by the Lord Jesus Christ so that, in fact, He will humble us and bring us down, like in the days of the judges, so that He can lift us back up and deliver us. And that's the idea here. So shall they fear the name of Jehovah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. In other words, in the east. So you, you pretty much have all the major regions of the world covered. 
You've got the west, you've got the land of the rising sun, you've got the east, you've got the coastlands, you've got the ends of the earth. These passages, when you stack them up together, it's universal. It's all nations. And we're told that as a result of his judgment against their injustice, they shall fear him. Uh, Not just uh, a fear of dread, but they'll be brought to a proper reverence of the Lord. The term fear in the Old Testament is a term that is so pregnant with meaning, it really refers to every aspect of the Christian life. You can find verses where fear is associated with someone who's experienced forgiveness. There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Uh, You you can see the, the term fear in reference to worship. You can see it in reference to obedience, fear God, keep his commandments. This word really is the Old Testament term for the Christian life. And so these nations will be judged. They'll be dashed to pieces in a sense. They'll be stricken. But as a result, uh, like in the days of the judges, they'll cry out to the Lord who struck them, and they'll fear him. They'll fear the name of Jehovah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of Jehovah will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. This is the verse Paul quotes in Romans 11 to speak of the the massive conversion of the Jews. Isaiah 59 verse 20, when he says, all Israel will be saved, he then quotes this verse. The Redeemer will come to Zion. He he uses some slightly different prepositions and, and there are reasons for that that we don't have time for. But essentially quotes this verse regarding the Redeemer coming to Zion and to Jacob. So clearly Paul understood this in the same way, that this is a reference to the power of the gospel, regrafting the Jewish people into the olive tree through faith in Christ. Now what I want to note here in verse 19 is that connected with this global outpouring of the Spirit that brings the fear of the Lord throughout you know, from the west to the east. Notice, once again, it's not just this obvious, easily anticipated, gradual stair-step expansion of the kingdom, like, uh, like some people teach. There are people who call themselves post-millennialists, and they talk a lot about optimistic eschatology and uh, the, the gospel. Many of the things we've been talking about, they talk about all these things, but if you listen carefully, there's a spirit of triumphalism about their, about their doctrine where it just seems like everything's getting better and better and better and full speed ahead and um, really not fully appreciating the biblical emphasis upon suffering and victory. Uh, you even look at the glorious revolution among the covenanters after they endured through the killing times, the glorious revolution 1689, um, where the principles of the Covenanters, to a large extent, held sway and and transformed the Western world, and certainly the land of Scotland and England, um, not as far as it should have, but a major influence, a major victory in general terms. But it came through suffering, it came through bloodshed, it came through the enemy coming in like a flood and slaughtering people, and yet they were victorious through their endurance and perseverance. So it was not as though it just gradually got better and better. You can see this in the early church as well. 
There were 10 major persecutions of Rome against Christians, and the final one ended just a very short span of years, a very short span of years, very short time before, between the end of that 10th persecution and the edict of toleration from Constantine that ended the persecution and set things on a trajectory of uh, embracing the Christian faith. So uh, understand this is, this great advance is in connection with great conflict, great suffering and endurance on the part of the people of God. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of Jehovah will lift up a standard against him. And I think that second half of the verse is meant to be a summary of what has come before. So you have the Lord seeing injustice and unrighteousness in the earth. You have judgment that comes upon them. And then you have this global fear of the Lord covering the earth from west to east or from east to west. And then it's summarized that, yes, this conflict will involve the enemy coming in like a flood. In other words, it seems like the enemy is going to be making massive strides. The enemy seems to be coming in like a flood. And what are we going to do? And times are desperate and dark, but it's at that moment when things are at their bleakest and darkest that the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him, against the enemy, against the devil in his kingdom. The reason I point this out is simply to emphasize that we should not think that we know where things are headed on the, on the global uh, stage. Just because things are getting worse and worse and the enemy is coming in like a flood, we're told that the precursor to this unprecedented advance of the fear of God throughout the world, that the precursor to it is actually that things seem as bleak as they could possibly be. And that the devil himself and all of his influence and all of the worldly wickedness and perversion and all these things, the enemy comes in like a flood and it seems like God's people are just being utterly devastated, that's when the Spirit of Jehovah will lift up this standard, this banner, Isaiah 11, and gather the fullness of the Gentiles, and all Israel will be saved. That's the paradigm here. So the idea, well, if the enemy's coming in like a flood, therefore it's the second coming. Biblically speaking, we have just as much right to say, well, the enemy's coming in like a flood, let's hold fast. This could turn out in in, in an amazing, unforeseen triumph for the kingdom of God because that's the pattern that God often uses. When things are bleakest, you know, Jesus came after darkness light. Jesus came at the bleakest moment. The people that were in great darkness have seen great light. Uh, The same could be said of the Reformation or of the Great Awakening. So we, we should actually view these things in our society as reason to pray and to intercede all the more that the Spirit would indeed lift up that standard of the gospel. Now, there's more that could be said here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abbreviate this so we can finish our sermon this evening. Um, but you, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 60 through Isaiah 66, uh, seven chapters, where Isaiah brings forth numerous prophecies about Uh, salvation, about the church, about the expansion of God's kingdom. We don't have time to get into all of these things, but you can see many of the same themes repeated 
and you, you'll see as you read through it that very frequently there's a, there's a picture that's given of the expansion of the gospel, and then it flows right in to a picture of heaven. And, and it's, it's not really our purpose to draw that line of demarcation in every, in every passage. We don't have time to do that. But you'll see that as, as a theme and as a pattern in those verses. But I, I want us to conclude just with, with a, a couple points of emphasis here uh, that come to us from Isaiah. We said that the confidence of Christ is based upon his sacrifice. He has done the work and he has earned the reward and all that God has prophesied will come to pass because he who promised is faithful. That's the encouragement that Jesus cites in Isaiah 49. And that needs to be our confidence. And it's something that we find emphasized in Isaiah 52 and 53 when we think of the work of Christ to save sinners. Uh, Notice how this emphasis on uh, the nations and on the the great and massive uh, outpouring of the Spirit and and the salvation of a great multitude. Notice this uh, emphasis. Isaiah 52, 15. Speaking of Christ, who, who died for our sins, so shall he sprinkle many nations. I don't want to push that too far. If you're a Baptist, you know, we can agree to disagree, but if Presbyterian, we would see this as a strong evidence of you know, the Great Commission baptizing and teaching. He's sprinkling many nations. Go disciple the nations, baptizing them, sprinkle the nations in any event. Um, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told, of the, told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. And so you're going to have even kings and nations being sprinkled, brought into the church through baptism, profession of faith, raising godly families, so on and so forth. This is all connected with the sacrifice of Christ. He purchased this. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and following. Uh, We're told that uh, uh, midway through the verse, when you make... Uh, his soul and offering for sin, he shall see his seed. This is those for whom he died. The seed of Abraham. Uh, all families and nations of the earth. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. So notice the emphasis here. He'll see his seed. Uh, He'll see the many kings and nations sprinkled, baptized, discipled, brought into his kingdom. He'll see not just the Jews, as if that was a small thing, but the, the fullness of the Gentiles as well. And he'll see that. And he will be satisfied with the labor of his soul, the reward of his labor, as it were. He'll be satisfied with that. He asked for the nations, he'll see it, and he will be satisfied when he justifies not just a few scattered, but many. Many. And as you look at Isaiah 54, on the heels of Isaiah 53, that multitude that characterizes his covenant people throughout the ages is emphasized. I preached on this recently, so I'm not going to 
uh, go into too much detail, but uh, the barren woman is called there to rejoice with singing because her children, and Paul cites this in Galatians 4 as a reference to the Gentile nations, the barren woman, very few converted Gentiles in the Old Testament, but now she's breaking forth into singing because more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman from the Jews. The Jews are rejecting it. The Gentiles are saved en masse. And you, you can see the, the great joy and the expansion. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Uh, lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You'll expand to the right and to the left. So there's a massive expansion. There is a, a, a multitude of offspring. Nations are sprinkled as a result of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, we know that's our confidence and our basis for claiming this hope. What is our response based on the prophecy of Isaiah? What ought to be our response to this truth? What, what role do we have? Now, we could speak here of our role in, in engaging in evangelism. And certainly we have an evangelistic service coming up next Lord's Day morning. Uh, be thinking and praying about who in your sphere of influence you could invite to come and hear the gospel preached. Uh, think about it. Pray about it. Ask for opportunities from the Lord, and don't be surprised if he gives you those opportunities to bring people under the preaching of the gospel. Uh, this morning in my pastoral prayer, I prayed for numerous evangelistic opportunities that we have, pro-life evangelism, uh, street preaching at the bus stop in Detroit, uh, some of you are involved in a, a ministry at the uh, Christian Guidance Center, also in Detroit, and uh, the Japanese ESL ministry. So there are a number of ways that some of us may be able to get involved, and so that needs to be highlighted. But in addition to that, what's something that we can all do, even if we're not able to participate in those particular ministries? Well, one thing that we can do is pray. We can pray. We can claim the promise and then pray. We can, we can come before the Lord and pray for nations of the world. We can pray for kings and people in high positions that they would come to a knowledge of the truth so that we can live a quiet life in godliness throughout every nation. You see that in 1 Timothy 2. But Isaiah 62, uh, in describing these great blessings upon the church, says this in verses 6 and 7. We're going to close with this. It's a, it's a call to prayer. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. It says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. This is God giving you um, permission. I mean, it's a command, but in a sense, he's giving you permission. Give me no rest. I want you to come to me. I want you to pray for the nations of the world, whether it's all of them or one by one, as you, you know, come into contact with people from those nations or information about those nations, as the Lord places this upon your heart, give me no rest, he says. Give him no rest till he establishes 
and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Uh, This is that for which we desire. Prayer is offering up our desires unto God in accordance with His will. We know this is in accordance with His will. Is it our desire? If it's our desire, it's going to come out in our prayers. It's going to come out in our prayer meetings. We're going to be praying for the kingdom of God to come And we're going to be praying for the will of God to be done in earth as it is in heaven. We're going to not be silent. And the watchmen on the walls may refer to leadership in the church. That may very well be. And there's a particular burden that we have, privilege really. But all of God's people are those who make mention of the Lord. And he says, as you do that, do not keep silent. Intercede for Zion. Take hold of God. Claim these promises. Christ has set us an example. He's negotiating and interceding in Isaiah 49. Read through that passage. He neither failed nor was discouraged, but he wrestled with the Lord in prayer, and he, in a holy, reverent way, demanded the fruit of his sacrifice, demanded the nations as his inheritance, according to that covenant of redemption. And my friends, we ought to do the same till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are faithful in all of your promises. There is not one word that you have uttered that has ever returned void. And there is not one promise that is yet to be fulfilled that shall not be fulfilled in its proper time. Uh, For centuries, your believing people waited for that one of whom it is said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, They waited, and in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman made under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law, and to give us the blessing of Abraham. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, O God, in those promises that have yet to be fulfilled, and that we in our labors would not fail nor be discouraged, that we would not remain silent but would intercede, even as we do right now. We pray, O God, bring the fullness of the Gentiles to faith in Christ. Bring the Western world to its knees in humble repentance and faith Cause the fear of the Lord and the, the, the glory of your name uh, to, to be even uh, throughout the eastern world, the land of the rising sun. We pray that your name and your glory would advance to those places of the world where it has not yet come by way of gospel proclamation, the unreached people groups, of which there are billions of people in those groups. We pray, Lord, that the work of missions, of translation, of uh, sending forth servants and messengers into the harvest, we pray that it would be abundantly and richly blessed to the salvation of many and to the advancement of the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.